The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague and official agitator, friend, and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So interesting guest today, right? Not the normal. Right. Yeah. Kind of a deviation from our norm, but that's what we're all about, right? The Jason studies. So today's guest came uh, through the British Columbia Institute of Technology, which is a great school, by the way, and is founder and CEO of uh, PlankSip and founding principal of BD Consulting, a firm that uses data and inspire business leaders to always consider the air we breathe and the carbon we create. So two big messages right there are important. Welcome to the show, Daniel Sanderson. Oh, thanks guys for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Daniel, you uh, have an ethos that focuses on the societal impacts of the environment and individual responsibility protecting our living spaces uh, from the effects of climate change, which is an interesting topic, particularly in BC, where you're from. Talk to you about that a little bit later. But part of your journey for solutions includes uh, prefabrication and modular construction, and that's really one of the big stories we want to talk about today. So tell us your origins and the evolution of your philosophies. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been uh, an indirect path to the modular construction realm. And, the, you know, the career path has been, you know, rather up and down. I mean, I've, I've had an upward trajectory my entire adult career, but I found that the construction industry has actually been quite, quite good to me in terms of construction projects, working with various different manufacturers, putting food on the table, it doesn't go without its frustrations, however, but uh, for the most part, that's my day job, right? And so years ago, I started off as a manufacturer's rep for a company called Nanowall, and they, they represent a technology from Germany. They partner with a company called SolarLux out of Osnabrück, Germany, and they, they focus on large operable wall systems for residential and commercial jobs hospitality and uh, stadiums, in fact. So they've got uh, quite a ubiquitous name in, in the architectural industry. From there, I owned my own window and door company, primarily focused on residential single-family homes. From there, I sold my company in 2016 and started working in the, the land of modular homes and uh, factory-built homes. And so here we are today, uh, a little bit of an added piece. I, I started a publishing company and, you know, snuck that in there. So, you know, lots of cultural little add-ons, I guess, to, to make life worthwhile. Uh, that's quite the uh, journey. I'm going to call that a zigzag, <laughs> a zigzag yeah. forward, right? So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there for me. But housing is one of the things that fascinates me. So talking about the Anglo-Saxon sort of culture of home ownership. I don't know what it is, but you know there is a culture in the Anglo. So I'm talking like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, even the US, right? Where I buy a house, it only ever goes up, and it's the path to this, it's the path to a secure life. And what that has resulted in, certainly where I live, just outside Toronto, you can sell any piece of crap. Excuse my language, right? And you can just put a Remax flag on that, and people will throw money at it. And I do not understand it. 
a house is a wasting asset, right? Like a car is a wasting asset. You buy it, you have to pay tax on it, you have to maintain it. It's a utility, not an asset. I would argue it's not even a, it's not a good investment. It's an inflation hedge at best. So would you agree with any of that? I'm happy to be knocked down here. <laughs> mm. No, I absolutely agree with it. Unfortunately, there's something you know called a zeitgeist, which is a dominating cultural fact that you know this is the game that we play. And when you dig down to it, you know, really deeply, you can go back to you know some of the origins of how to you know construct a society. You know, we talk about somebody like Plato, for example, who says, well. You know, we, we could have more of a commune. And the danger in lies with individual property, property rights. It's so entrenched right down to, you know, the very core of what it means to be a citizen. And I mean, yeah. that's kind of the, the problem. It's hard to untangle from that. It's hard to untangle from responsibility and what it actually means to own property. And so I tend to side with property ownership as a means to take you know, our, our plebeian middle class into a possibility of wealth. I am definitely sympathetic with your, with your position. It, it, it does, it is very problematic, I think, well, especially the, the inflated ins- bubble, you know? Yeah, right. Well, and there's, there's a huge element of insecurity that's created in those bubble zones, right? I mean, you think about the kids that graduate out of high school or even the colleges out of Vancouver or Toronto, where you are from Adam or anywhere where, you know, inflated prices, put the cost of housing out of reach of the lives of kids or the next generation. And so, you know, then, and it actually creates a, a continuing separation because there's those who can afford it for whatever, you know, fortunes that they have, you know, someone who's in their mid twenties to mid thirties, they get into a family, they can get the house, they have the kids, but then there's a big part of society now that we're seeing where the kids just can't make it happen. And they see, you know, their peers buying houses and they're looking at their own lives and they're going, I'll never make it, you know, and this has created a bunch of insecurity in our society. Actually, what you said there, actually, Darren, is quite profound. You know, the good intentions sometimes have unintended consequences, right? So there's a great intention here, property rights, extending property rights to everybody, own your house, have some security of the roof over your head. That, that is all great stuff and that is awesome. But as the market has evolved, as you say, it's become a bit of a shell game, right? And it's... Uh, mm. It started off enfranchising people, and it's now in the process of disenfranchising people. So I was listening to David McWilliams' podcast, and he was talking about Ireland, which is a good example. Ireland's a great example because it's a small version of what goes on in the UK and other bigger countries, right? So in Ireland, for example, they have uh, 20,000 graduates every year leave Ireland because they literally cannot afford to live there. Mm. So Ireland used to have two problems, no jobs and no housing. Now it has really one problem, too expensive housing. They got a lot of jobs there now, but people leave. So 20,000, he, he did the math on it. He said 20,000 graduates who cost a million dollars or million euros to, gra- to graduate them out of the system, then leave. That's a $20 billion a year cost to the Irish economy. That's going mm-hmm. somewhere else, right? That's without all the consequential costs and damages that that does, right? So that housing is a massive problem. Now, my personal hope for this is, and I think the solution is, an increase in supply, right? This is where modular housing comes in. So let's, let's just live in a fantasy land where the bureaucracy is minimized and you can actually go ahead and build something or get a permit to put a house somewhere, right? The answer, I believe, is modular housing, which is where your sort of background comes in. So your experience, let's just talk about modular. For me, modular housing is I can, I buy a nice little plot of land somewhere, 
I go online or I go to I go to a, a factory and say I want that, that, and that. And then four weeks later, this crane goes neat, boosh, and it's done. That is the dream, I think. Is that even possible? Well, I mean, it definitely is possible. And there's a, there's a tradition that goes back, uh, you know, almost uh, a couple generations of modular homes. We've we've seen them. We know what a we, we know what a trailer park is. Yes. You know, there's a pejorative to say that. You know, my girlfriend and her family live in a trailer park. What does that say? What, like, yeah, that, right. that, that says that you, you know, you're poor, right? It says you can't get hurricane insurance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's this stigma, uh, you know, associated with it. And um, the pleasure that I've actually had in dealing with a company out of Richmond in British Columbia here is, is we both surrounded ourselves with the upper echelon of of construction and architects, right? So we were working on projects were anywhere from $600 to $1,600 a square foot build costs, right? I mean, when you get up to the higher echelon of that, these are, these are more corporations and ultra rich that are really buying these homes yeah. and developing these kinds of homes, what, right? Can you say that square footage cost again? $600 to $1,600 a square foot. Wow, that's a range. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's well, yeah. There, I mean, there's architect firms on on the Pacific Coast that when a client walks through the door, they say, "Are you willing to spend north of six hundred, maybe eight hundred dollars as a starting point per square foot?" And if the answer is no, they say, "Well, we're not your architect." I like this. That, I like the honesty of that. Actually, we know where our clients are, and if you can't afford that, then you know there's a. Uh, we are the upper echelon. So that's my background. It was in a 1% of a 1%. What is the construction cost per square foot if you were to take a guess across Canada for the bulk of housing? We're talking under $200 a square foot, 180, 160? I'd say $200 a square foot would be, would be a, fair, a fair number. I mean, it, it varies greatly when you go to the East Coast and you can buy you know, a house on an acre property for $300,000, right? Yeah. I, mean, I almost wonder how can you actually build a house? Yeah, it just, it's crazy. Right. Uh, energy costs are much different, job, location. We live in this gem of the West Coast that's um, you know, made it sought after. And you have prices being pushed up from Asia. You have prices from Europe being you know, pushing up the Pacific Coast. And you've got just like really, really crazy pricing demand and a supply that's, you know, diminishing and coastlines are, you know, that's, that's where people want to live. So this is a bit like Elon Musk thing where, you know, in order for something to diffuse down, you've got to get the 1%, the 1%, then the 1%, then the 5%, then 10%, and then it becomes mainstream, right? Yeah, that's a good thought. Yeah, the 1% are basically the R&D team, right? That's right. Your early early adopters, it, yeah. it, it factors in many different industries like tech or, you know, but... I mean, think about the the geography of, of British Columbia. And I, I think the thing is, is that there's no simple answer. It'd be great to just have, you know, wave a magic wand and have everybody be able to afford and keep the rich, you know, poor divide much more attainable for people. Although I, I think it's a complex situation. You know, you have to look at all the factors. And I came from Alberta, conservative oil, small version of Texas in Canada. And you have builders like master a Jamin master builder that's all about the subdivision okay yeah. now that represents a certain kind of lifestyle in british columbia you're building on the sides of mountains you've got you know you know many rivers to to go across and so just property values are just more expensive plus it's beautiful here 
right? Yeah. It's really amazing. So I think the thing is, is that, yeah, it, it does attract a certain amount of wealth. And I think that's kind of okay. I, I try and think, you know, the least amount of radical deviations from the norm is probably the best. And so if we identify a social situation, we should kind of address it. But coming back to your point, I just, I wanted to, you know, kind of make a, a differentiation between the factory built homes, the modular homes that I'm involved with, and, you know, some of the misconceptions about modular homes or what we're up against in terms of, you know, trying to, I guess, overcome some of these, these prejudices. The company that I'm involved with is B-Fama Homes. That's B-E-F-A-M-A Homes. And they're at bfamahomes.com. They took, or we took the cost per square foot of the ultra rich. And we thought, well, what if we design something on 400 square feet, similar to like a one bedroom apartment, what would the cost be? And I mean, not using the cheapest production methodologies and ordering the, the raw materials and building materials not ordering the crappiest products, but building something with the very best products that we could, Curiosity was kind of tapping us on the shoulder saying, how much would that cost? Right? We're, we're used to building these 1,600 a square yeah. foot kind of things. What would it cost if we did, if we did that? And so in, anyways, we ended up with something at $400 a square foot. And um, so, I mean, it's not in the ultra affordable sort of category, but I tell you, it's a, a steel structure. It's using curtain wall and listeners may not know what curtain wall is, but it's a pressure equalized rain screen system that's used for, you know, scaffolding or it's used for the, um, you know, the window system and the, the facades yeah. on a, on towers, for example. Right. So we use this kind of technology and we went and, uh, you know, built a 400 square foot module and had it assessed by RBC and the, and the bank came back and they said, shit, this thing's worth $520,000, right? And so our problem was, is that, well, we could sell it for 200 because we, we started with the, the very best of the best of the best and simplified manufacturing processes yeah. and standardized it in, and this is the key word, in a factory. So <laughs> we weren't trying to build paper thin walls. We weren't trying to use the cheapest vinyl windows that we could find. We're trying to use the cheapest flooring that we could, because look, there's a big claim here about environment. And I think that if you're going to use something that will last generations, and I mean everything from flooring to facade to structure, this is the thing that is truly environmental, something that will last generations, not yeah. something that will yeah. end up in the scrap heap in, yeah. in 30 years. That's kind of the evolution in the story behind our designs of these, these factory built homes. And, you know, effectively with a 50 ton crane, they can be moved and put in various different locations. And I think municipalities all over North America are really assessing this idea of secondary dwellings, right? They're looking at being able to put laneways, coach houses, yeah. secondary dwellings and offer that as something that adds to the title of the property, allows for affordability. And I hope to kind of fit that niche a little bit. I guess the, the sort of, the move to more homework and having a so if you've got a decent sized garden or yard, you could put a I don't know a two hundred square foot office in there, right? Or hundred square oh, foot office in the back, right? Boom. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a story about Bill Gates, for example. He's got you know a small little office that he puts up on a hill. It's just a place that he can go and think and have. And I mean, it's a luxury. I get it. Not yeah. everybody's Bill Gates, but 
you know, for this, the fact that this, this thing may cost $100,000, you know, it's a legitimate structure meets all the, the building code. It adds real property value. The bank says it's 100000 You say you buy it for 100000 Your value of your property goes up 100000 Like, you know, this is the game we want to play. Yeah. And we don't want the bottom to fall out of the market either because, you know, to a certain degree, the, you know, the quality will also go with it too. We had uh, Lloyd Alter on uh, from Tree Hugger. I had him a long time ago. We need yeah. to get back on again, actually. But one of the parts of the discussion we had was about architecture and unusable space and the cost of that unusable space. And following the show, I did a little exercise, which I still use in my presentations today. But we basically took a 16 by 10 room and gave it a $200 square foot construction cost. That could be like an office tower, for example. And then just said, well, what happens if like roughly 50 square feet of that was unusable because of poor indoor environmental quality, either noise, lighting, thermal comfort, whatever. Well, all of a sudden, you know, the cost of that usable space is no longer $200 a square foot. It's like approaching $300 a square foot. So in many ways, what we're saying is build higher quality, smaller spaces. And if you think about the cost, environmental costs, economic costs of having unusable space, it's huge. Yeah. You know, if you could take one office in one office tower and one city block and say that whatever 30% of it is unusable, and then you gross that up in terms of the construction materials and the raw materials were taken from the planet, and then what it takes to, you know, obviously dispose of that again, like it's huge. And you're also tying up the finances for that too, for spaces again that you can't build. So, you know, what could you do with that money? And what could you do and what would happen to, the environment if we could actually maybe do what you're saying is really is that build smaller, build better, and uh, it's much better economically and environmentally. Yeah. So you were saying that um, when you got RBC to look at it, so that's Royal Bank of Canada for our international listeners to look at it, they were willing to recognize its value and lend against it? Oh, for sure. That's one of the major things that we wanted to do. I mean, when there's this much money tied up in a $10 million factory, when the prototype's coming out, you want somebody to be able to look at this and say, okay, has the bank actually appraised it? Or, you know, an appraiser actually looked at it so that you can take it to the bank and say the value of this is this. So the answer is yes. You know, is it pre-approved by RBC? Yeah, that was another thing that we did because, you know, here's the thing. I mean, you want to remove uncertainty. Uncertainty means risk. Yes. And so it may be the nicest thing in the world, but, you know, this is one of the things that the average consumer has to navigate. All three of us in this virtual room really know how to, I would say, assess the quality of a construction project, of of building material. But, you know, for the average layman who's looking at something neat that happens to be on on the internet, they think, well, why can't I get that? Yeah. What I'm hearing here is really interesting because there are several barriers, right, to getting a modular home on a place that looks awesome, right? So, effectively, what you're saying is the, the technology to build it is there, right? That problem solved. And also, interestingly, which I didn't know, a major bank is willing to recognize that as an asset and lend against it, right? That's another yep. big problem solved. Right? Huge. So you're left with two problems, as far as I can see. The bureaucracy to get a permit to put this thing somewhere, right? And then the cultural acceptance of it. So one thing I sort of understood as I got older was housing is a cultural phenomenon, right? I'll give you an example. Where I lived in the UK, and then I moved here, right? So I'm walking around, I'm with a real set, they show me houses, and every house they show me is a wood frame with a felt roof. So where I come from, that's where dogs live, right? <laughs> Englishmen do not live in wood frame houses with felt roofs. Their dogs and their lawnmowers live in their houses. 
right? And I had to, it took me a while to get over that. So I wound up with a wood frame house with felt roof, but a brick facade. So it made me feel just a little bit better, right? Yeah. But culturally, that was a struggle for me, right? And now what I'm, I'm a big fan of modular housing, and I think they can look awesome and high-end, but there's this, but is it a trailer, right? So you've got the trailer park cultural phenomenon crashing with, uh, I don't know, the yuppie, like, post and beam, Miles van der Rohe, drop it in thing, right? So that's, I think there's two problems to solve, culture and accessibility to plant it somewhere. So that's mm. the land and the permits and the bureaucracy. We had a group of friends. We wanted to build a little blue zone. I'm a big fan of blue zones. The blue zones where people regularly live to 100 years old, right? And there's a famous book about it. And so I said to my friends here, you know, I've got two of them at least. Why don't we build a blue zone in Ontario? This is a great place to live. We build a little community of like-minded people. We live well. We eat well. We exercise. So we looked at buying a plot of land and then just building like three or four homes on it, right? The money's not the issue. The will to do it is not the issue. Finding a home and getting the permits for that, I said, well, I gave up. I spent six mm. months of my life on it, and it was just impossible. Because unless you're a big, like, suburban home builder, they're not interested in you. It was like trying to sell leprosy. I could not get anyone in authority to do that for me, or even find a bit of land, as it turns out, to do it on. Right? Because there's plenty of farmland, but you think I'll flip that into residential. Now, if you're Matami Homes, you can buy all the farms and you know you're getting that flipped over at some point into residential, right? <laughs> That's just the way the game works. So I think where you are, you know, having the 1% do it, because they show it's possible, right? Mm-hmm. But we've got to find a way to bust through to get that into the more middle class, sort of like white collar, working, blue collar people who can just buy a bit of land or buy a subdivision. Is there mm-hmm. not a way for a a builder to recognize this phenomenon, buy a subdivision, do all the infrastructure work, that's a development, right? And then mm-hmm. they partner with someone, by your firm doing modular homes, and then people go and say, I like that one, and I want that one. And then you pop it on, right? That's what I'd love to see. I would buy that. Mattamy did that, though. They tried that in Ontario. They buy a large parcel of land. They actually built a factory on site on the parcel oh, really? of land. Everything was built in the building. They'd pull up a semi-flatbed. They'd crane the house onto the flatbed in pieces, drive it down the road onto the foundation that was already poured and build the houses. So they were doing it. And for whatever reason, it it didn't make economic sense for them. The other thing that maybe the problem was is they couldn't find the right people to work within that project as far as getting... Trades. I, I don't know what it was, but you know, maybe that's something we ought to explore because there is an example where they did it. I mean, really, the goal is to take what Daniel's doing and try and break it into the mainstream a bit more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's been done. But you know, but the other thing too is, that, I mean, you take companies like Lindell Homes, right? Mm-hmm. They've been making modular cabins for. I mean, God, I can remember them when I was a kid. Yeah. Right. So there is a company that's more, you know, has been able to sustain its existence, but they're not selling a million houses a year either, right? But they're they've managed to get on that path and stay on it. What like what gives? You know, we know it works, obviously. Lindell's doing it, but we know there's upper end challenges. Mad at me, stop doing it. What do you see, Daniel? What do you think are the obstacles yeah. to the next step? That is kind of perplexing me. And actually, yeah. I have nothing to say. Like I I it literally I don't know. Yeah. It's, and that's an odd thing. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know why it's not catching on. I will point out that when we bring up the concept of affordable housing, that 
I hear a lot of stuff on the news. Okay. And in Canada, we have the CBC. So you hear it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. Okay. And I'm intimately, oh, that's not the correct, that that wouldn't be the correct word. I've got a really good friend (laughs) that I'm I'm, I'm financially (laughs) tied to. I can't say I'm intimate with this, but I'm financially tied and vested in this company. And I'll hear the affordability issue politicized. Yeah. I'm in the corner raising my hand saying, we can do it. And then there's no housing, no housing, no housing. I'm sitting there going, we can do it. No housing, no housing, no housing. We can do it. No uh-huh. housing, no housing. No orders come our way. <laughs> so, so. We've got $10 million worth of property and assets. We've got a half a million dollar PPG paint line. This is somebody that he's the owner of Bifama, had a pre-existing company in the construction. He knows the construction industry. Yeah. We've met with the municipalities. They're supportive, but what does that mean? Oh, sure. If you send it, we'll look at it. Can't guarantee anything, but we'll look at it. Oh, how much risk are you putting on the table here? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, we'll be lucky if we can make it through the next 36 months based off of no orders. We don't know where the orders are going to come from. You know, it's just a huge, huge gamble. And so for anybody who in their in their their twilight years that wants to go to this community that you're talking about like the blue zone you know he's sitting there going okay I'm worth 10 million dollars how much of that do I want to put into marketing and promotion and as I hear it flush down the toilet <laughs> how much do I want to do that yeah yeah how much more does this guy have to do before he's offering a, a very valid you know solution yeah. He still needs to connect homeowners with with the orders. He needs orders. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, that's it. And then you have you have the news and you have the politics and the politicians. Well, it's a problem, it's a problem, it's a problem. We're saying it's not a problem for us. Give us an order for 20 or 100 or 200. Great. <laughs> like I've been looking at California with the homeless problem there, and I've been waiting for someone in government there to say, you know what, we're gonna there's that land, there's like 20 acres over there. We're gonna build a modular housing thing there and make it affordable, right? I think that might be the breakthrough, something like that where a situation gets so out of control like homelessness or like disenfranchised working people and they just have to, have to do something. That might be the breakthrough. That's the only way I can see it breaking into yeah. mainstream, but it's not a great reason for it to break into mainstream. It's about the worst reason possible, right? But yeah, I guess you've got to take it if you can. This, this all leads on nicely. So the other thing that's been fascinating me is like modular housing, and then the whole thing with this firm called Katera down in, in the US. So for our international listeners, Katera was a firm funded by SoftBank who funded WeWorks, which is another goddamn disaster, right? So all the money in the world was dropped into this company. And the idea was they were going to make a vertically integrate the whole construction process. Anyone could go to them and say residential, condos, hotels, we'll build it, we'll design it, build it, put it in place, boom, everything. So we get a... They spent fortunes on like manufacturing facilities and they were bringing like tech people and construction people together and it went bust. So every superstar you can imagine was orbiting around it. And then next thing you know, it's just gone down the toilet. All the money in the world, great intentions, yet somehow that went headfirst into the current construction industry who went, hold my beer, we don't like you, splat. <laughs> right? Culture. Now, one of the things they were bringing to the table was big data and data. They were sort of have a data-driven like 
process. Now, you've got some experience with that, right? Yeah. So my my experience was that I've always been a very analytical, we'll say salesperson to fill to fill in the, into that category. There's a right. bit of a pejorative around that, but as yeah. a business owner and an entrepreneur, I mean, I've represented manufacturers and about the only way that I can convince somebody to do anything is with numbers and, you know, to make a convincing case. I have to say, well, this makes sense and this is why. So as a general rule, as a, a, a non-starter, I could never sell anything that I didn't believe in, right? So when I was, um, you know, the Nanowall rep, I, I had to, you know, I had a big territory of Western Canada and, uh, you know, I had to somehow make sense of all of the architects and the projects. I was involved with a big company. So we had what's called a CRM and we had to manage the relationships of, you know, people that were mildly interested to people that had orders in the system, right? And it's just a lot of moving parts. So what I found over my career is that when I first started, I was in the architectural offices and very valued for the the knowledge that I had and the research that I had. But as the knowledge became more ubiquitous on the internet, this type of thing, then the need for me to come in and do the dog and pony show at an architect's office was like, well, I could just look it up on the internet. And so the value of that in-person sort of, you know, consultative sales approach was diminishing, you know, and unless the product was very complex, then, you know, your, your value had to actually, this is something that happens in many industries, right? You know, you got to keep providing value. Otherwise, you know, you kind of be pinched out. So where I uh, naturally developed was to take into, you know, my analytical approach and focus on big data. And so I started working with one particular company out of Eastern Canada, Mississauga, actually, Quest Windows. And um, their motto on their website is, we clad skyscrapers. That kind of basically yeah. tells the story, right? Yeah. And so I was brought on and I, I did some market analysis. I evaluated you know, various different aspects of markets, projects in different geographical areas, and I was working on that contract with Quest Windows for a year and a half. And that was, I guess, you know, I, I played an important role with the purchase of their and the development of their 500,000 square foot facility in Texas. So it was an expansion project. And um, that was also the point where they moved away from a, a ma and pa sort of ownership between right. the cash family. Cool. And yeah, they went, well, a big money equity firm bought them out. Yeah. So it that's different. It's not family money, it's equity money. And that's that's a little bit different, right? And so you, you know, you bring in people to do certain things. And I was brought in to, you know, for my background in the construction industry, but then also my my analytical and ability to look at large swaths of data and build databases, right? Because I had that intimate knowledge on construction industry, it informed how I actually structured you know, the data set. And so maybe to bring that in, you know, like kind of put a little bow on it is to say that it was somebody like me that took the initiative to say, I want to take the knowledge that I have and implement it into future systems. Whereas the construction industry is, is very antiquated and very old and backwards, if you're comparing it to other industries, right? And so, you know, there's an ethos of, well, that's just the way we've been doing it. I mean, I'll give you an example. The same company that, you know, was building these manufacturer homes, together we took a stance that said, you know what, we're no longer bidding projects. Yeah. Like, what what do you mean we're not bidding a project anymore? Well, 
as a contractor, take on all the risk. You put the bid in and you know, you're up against, I don't know, however many people and very rarely do they take the high bid. Uh, you know, like, so you got to be the lowest guy and you take on all the risk. And it was like, this guy said, I got a $10 million facility. Why would I just hand over my retirement because a project could go sideways? And I, it's the stupidest contract for me to sign as the guy who's the contractor. It's just most contractors don't have $10 million in equity. They're usually at a pickup truck and, you know, whatever. And so they're the beholden to the slave of the bottom rung of the ladder. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, you know, you have an architect that's hired on a project. When you go to their office, they've got the entire top two floors of the high rise. They say, wow, that's interesting because, you know, the labor on this particular project is (laughs) like, that's a lot of planning. Yeah. You know? It just seems like it's, uh, you know, it's not structured properly. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. To put some perspective for our listeners in terms of, you know, industry, I think it takes six months to build a Boeing 747. I think it took two years to build the largest cruise liner now available on the oceans. It takes less than three days to build, I think, a Toyota Corolla. Mm. It takes roughly two years to build a 30-story high-rise and the same amount of time to build a 15,000-square-foot custom home. You know, and so when you think about the modular construction prefabrication in terms of relative use compared to right, other industries, well, those are other industries that require engineering, require manufacturing, require procurement, all of the other systems that are required. And it just illustrates just how, going back to your comment, how antiquated the industry is. When you look at the other industries, I don't know. In my lifetime, Adam, yours, are we going to see changes? I don't know. It's a game of consequences, right? So at the moment, all the incentives in construction are lined up to cut corners and be cheap. You know, construction for ocean liners and 747 aeroplanes have consequences. They have to be right or people die, right? Now, you could say buildings have to be built right, people die. That's true. But the latitude for risk and failure is way different, right? Until users and owners either go on a buyer strike or demand through consequences, real things, real change, it's never going to happen. Every problem in the construction industry, in my opinion, is the developers and owners' fault because they do not demand it. You could say, if you was a developer, you could hire the biggest contracting house, say, look, dude, this is it. I'll give you this job. I want zero defects. I want time or I am going to sue you till you die, right? Now, the way construction works in Canada is he'll that contractor phone all the other contractors say don't touch this dude and that dude will never get his place built right because that's how it works here but that's what needs to happen there need to be consequences for bad work and failure and good work needs to be rewarded and it's completely the opposite at the moment right the risk yeah. profile right as you're saying architects yeah. offices are infinitely nicer than the engineers and their offices are infinitely nicer than most of the subcontractors right that's all you need to know about who's getting what when and who's taking what risk? <laughs> Just look at the cars that are driving. It tells you everything. Yeah? 
Now, and architects will tell you it's tough out there and fees are low and blah, 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 but they still live way better than the subcontractors. Well, I have a little sympathy on that. I mean, they're, they're, they're the equivalent of a doctor too. So, I mean, that might be partially, nah. you know, no? Nah, I'm off. I've got a little bit of hate going for architects because, mm. yes. Hate is such a strong word. No, no, yeah, <laughs> it is a strong word, isn't it? Yeah, I'm old and I'm cancerable. This is what I can say. Hate's the wrong word, actually, because I am a fan of buildings because I see them as a form of art, and like sculpture for me, right? Right. And architects are artists, but they're not technicians or technical. Now, you can be a technical architect, you can be a technician, right? But they seem to grab all the glory, and the structural engineer and the building services engineers get nothing, right? That's well, yeah. I mean, you look at the Aqua Tower in Chicago, there's a my god, the poor engineers on that job site from the structural to electrical to mechanical, like yeah. they had to kowtow to Jeannie Gang and her crew. And you know, that building going up, and I got in, I was in Chicago several times during the construction yeah. of that building, not because I was a tight in the job, but I was observing, I was going, What uh, you cluster, you know what. And I mean, I think it was at actually probably at the 11th or 12th floor, they were already getting awards. You know, and I'm thinking of this, you just wait till this thing gets commissioned, yeah. you know, and so it took a couple years, right? And then sure enough, some engineers went out and did some thermographic images of the aqua tower in the middle of freaking February in Chicago. And sure enough, that was a shit show of a thermal disaster for a building that won a whole bunch of awards. Yeah. So there's, there's a case for the arc. And then they went on to do some other buildings like that. And it's just like, you're right, Adam. I mean, they, the accolades go and the engineering gets stuffed to the background and that the and ultimately who ends up paying for it is the occupants. Yeah, you know? So the, the, if, you, if you took the data approach that Daniel's talking about, right, and you sit there and say, right, what's the return on investment on an architectural degree or an engineering degree or a finance degree? You're going finance all the way, right? The average earnings in the UK for an architect are 25000 a year. So architecture is a very interesting business because it skews to the, to the tail end, right? The bulk of people earn nothing and work on horrible things like toilet cubicle details. And then you get the architect superstars, the star architects, right, who are doing the grip and grins and they're on the six o'clock moves, pushing the engineers back with their elbows. You know, those guys earn the money. They're normal fosters of this world, right? They earn the money, but they are the 1% of the 1%. Yeah, right? yeah so there's like that have... guy whose last name rhymes with scary. begins with G. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zaha, her dad, right? Zaha, her dad, I can say, right? She's my favorite architect. Her buildings are awesome. Impossible to build. If you're a structure engineer on that, you might as well just shoot yourself, right? But they are gorgeous. And she earns a bucket of money. We used to when she was alive. But, you know, everyone else who worked on that job probably didn't know well at all. So, it's the business of property design construction is odd, right? There's a one percent in the architectural world. Most people don't earn enough. The engineers are ignored, and they have just as big brains as the architects. Basically, no one's making money except the developers because it's a rentier business, right? This is something I worked out, and it took me four years to get this. So I'm obviously a bit slow and stupid. A piece of land is a monopoly, and the building you put on that land is the monopoly by whoever owns it, right? Mm. They make money on a asset on the asset increasing every year and upward only leases. They make real money. Everyone else who designs that and works on that is a hired hand who makes a living. No one makes money except the people that own them buildings. So, you know, this is gets us back to residential, right? So it's the perception. I own a house. It makes money. It goes up. I'm awesome. My house is awesome. I sell it to someone else who's awesome, right? 
And it's the, the stock market has a name for it. It's called the greater fall theory. I will buy it and a bigger fall than me will buy it off me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but when we first spoke, Daniel, and you sent me to the website, the houses you were describing, a bunch of the houses, I wanted one of them so bad. There's one, I'll put a link on the show notes. There was an image of one and it was, you could build it and then you could add this other thing with a connecting thing. And it was just lovely, gorgeous, exactly yeah. what I want. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Muskoka and buy a bit of land and do this. And then just hitting that hurdle of finding a bit of land to put that on was enough for me to like, mm. and I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, we've gone down a bit of a spiral here, but you know. Yeah. But you, you triggered a thought, Daniel, not as Adam, when you were talking, yeah. question for Daniel is, um, you know, one of the things that we used to couch our clients and we used to use cater to engineers. That's who mm. we, when I was I had my design practice and sometimes we'd get somebody to come, you know, they come in an engineer who had just say a practical influence on the aesthetics of the home. Mm. And I would look them straight in the eye and then I would look at their spouse and I go, whoever buys this house has to be in the same mindset that you are when you designed it. And I said, you just eliminated like 90% of the buyers in the marketplace because of the practical stuff you want to put in. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I was like, well, for a walk the other night and my partner, she was telling me that, um, this tall engineer built a house and because he was tall and his wife was short, he just basically said, too bad, so sad, I'm going to raise the countertops another eight inches. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then anybody that comes in to buy that house, right, is going to like, so so the question I have, I'm sorry, a long long way to ask you the question. When it comes to prefab and modular, is there a stigma in the aftermarket? Is that one of the things that's holding it back? Well, in general, absolutely. But I think from the beginning, what we tried to do is to say, no, there, there isn't actually. And so we have a compelling case that there isn't. I mean, in architecture, there's a, a concept called monumental. And monumental is going to be what they built the Sydney Opera House. That's the standard that they build it to. Yeah. And monumental just means cultural. It means that it's going to be around for generations. That's all yeah. it is. Very simple. Very, very simple concept. So if you take a a modular, and in this case, why don't we call it factory built? Okay, because I mean, in in my situation, it is factory a factory built home because you have higher, you have better tolerances, okay, and higher precision. You have just a better product essentially. So you have a factory built structure, and you know, just happens to be a residential home. Okay, it's built in a factory. It's built in nine months as opposed to you know three years, right? And for us, the idea was that the foundation was included. And so there's a a foundation that's rated to soil bearing capacity of a thousand pounds per square inch. And so that's very similar to Richmond, which is very, you know, ground packed. It was below sea level and just like Amsterdam, they've had to build up in certain areas. So it's it's it, you know it's it's not on the most solid bedrock possible, but we've got a foundation that will meet that requirement of a thousand pounds of soil bearing capacity. And the point to get to your question is is that that fifty ton crane, when they set it on that foundation, can easily take it and then move it to your oceanfront home later on. And because of the life cycle of the building being several hundred thousand years, or sorry, several <laughs> several hundred thousand several. Yeah, this is an epoch. We're going to change our name to the epoch production. You know, so it, it, it's definitely many generations, right? Because there's nothing on this assembly that can actually degrade. It's wrapped in curtain wall or like something yeah. like a metal facade. 
So there's nothing that really can degrade on this for, you know, hundreds of years. And so anyways, it can, it can actually be moved and taken from one particular location and moved to another location. You know, that, that's something that is um, and should be very appealing. In fact, the foundation system can also be, you know, moved as well. And that's something that we haven't really thought about, but as sea levels rise, as forest fires decimate thousands of acres of property, we had to think about that. We had to think about how do you make a home resilient in these types of extreme locations? And so the forest fire is another good example. The curtain wall and the metal facade this is something where the embers from a fire can land and they're not going to go up like a tinderbox, you know? So the, the idea of that choice of material makes the home more resilient in a fire situation. <laughs> it's like, guys, start thinking about these solutions to the problems. Yeah. That's the idea. How do you find solutions to the problems? And so, you know, that's seems pretty simple. That's all we did. So yeah, but, that's, that's interesting, right? So you could uh, just assume you've got the land. You could put this on and it can become a multi-generational home, right? Yeah. Because of its longevity and the type of materials and the persistence of performance those materials can deliver. Exactly. And it can actually move with the property. You could take it, remove it, decouple it from the... But hey, it it still gets its own PID. It's still a licensed home. It still adds value to the property. But imagine putting a property up for sale with a coach house on it and saying, do you want it with or without the coach house? Well, without, thank you. We don't need that. All right. Well, we just produced your property by $200,000. Here's your offer. We'll take that when it closes and we'll move it out to our little cottage on the, on the water, uh-huh. right? Or Ontario, for example, where you live, Adam, you know, there's a lot of lake communities out there uh-huh. and, you know, it's uh, accessible by truck. You have a crane, plops it into place. There you've got your, your home. I mean, and, the most uh, sustainable home is the one you don't knock down, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> Are you guys familiar with the concept of balloon framing or like uh, a balloon uh, foundation? That? So, yeah, that's been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, right? I, it just, it, it's the perimeter. It has all of the, the structure to it. And this is very similar in the fact that there's on the 400 square foot unit, 13 and a half feet wide by, say, 33 feet long. That represents one module. You can stack them. You can, you know, you know, put other hybrid systems on them and stuff like that. But basically, the structural loading points are where you stack them. So you can have, you know, your structural HSS, your tube, your your steel structure is going to be at eight points around the perimeter. And so, you know, the, everything on the inside can be kind of designed how you want. If you want to have a commercial building, if you want to throw up a little, you know, commercial building or like a COVID relief center or interpretive center, or you want to have anything like that can go on. It doesn't have to be designed with, you know, an interior sort of living space. Right. That's interesting. So well, Daniel, I was going to ask you, I mean, one of the big challenges, so I've done a little bit of work with BC housing over the years. And uh, one of the workshops that we had here not too long ago had to deal with uh, changes in climate and the consequences, like you guys had a lot of people die in the summertime due to the heat waves. So when you're designing these buildings, one of the questions that we address in the workshop is how do we design for these future periods where the heat waves are so hot that our construction practices are inadequate, temperatures rise, people can't get rid of their heat, they get into a heat stroke. And then if they're elderly or infants, for example, that uh, can't uh, adapt, they end up 
going into stress. And then because of the stress, the hospital systems are overrun, just like they are now with COVID, but they can't respond. So people end up dying. So what have you done to look at that? I mean, because that is obviously, that is a concern that BC housing has for that particular region, but that concern applies really anywhere in the world. Yeah, you, you might we might even say that you know a disproportionate amount would be in, in in higher temperature areas, right? But as we know, that I think the delta is changing quite fast in in Canada and in northern climates. You're going to see more extremes. You're going to see you know higher high temperatures and, and 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 more dramatic swings with weather. And then heat only represents one of them, right? I mean, forest fires se- total separate concern. The issue about overheating in living spaces is something that is, is a complicated question because there's several ways to kind of approach it. One of the ways is to say, well, let's put appropriate energy to, to mediate the space of the living space. Like, you know, so we're talking about air conditioning and, you know, these types of things. And so with that strategy requires us to be mindful and more than mindful. So you'd say we have to have appropriate engineering that goes into the space to help design it so that we have the appropriate heating and cooling systems. And are those heating and cooling systems compatible with, in, in our case, step, you know, like the step code? Are they efficient use of, of resources? And we think so. We really do. I mean, this, this technology is absolutely cutting edge. And we have the ability to put anything in from a, a Tesla wall for, I guess, like a, a big capacitor for, yeah. for, for energy and electricity to something, you know, maybe as backwards as a, a propane tank. And you might say, well, why would we do that? Well, I mean, still way out in, in the boonies, there's going to be places where, you know, the only source of heating is actually that, you know, three-ton truck that's filled with propane that will, yeah. you know, fill you up in the, basically in the, you know, once or twice a year or something like that, right? And so, you know, we have the ability to retrofit it for that, include some efficiency like uh, tempered floors so that, you know, there's less demand. The thing is, is about you guys, are you guys both engineers? Yeah, well, Robert's an engineer, I'm a child surveyor. Okay, but you know what? You're like an artistic engineer. Can I give you that title? (laughs) Yeah. I know you're very analytical, but I mean, the, the thing, the thing I, I think about when you have conversations about energy, it's about the Delta change, right? And so we're working on a, a technology right now where I want, I want, the, I want you guys and, and the listeners to imagine a meridian, you know, these concrete block meridians that you see on a, uh, on a highway. Okay. Right. The ones that prevent deaths. Yeah. <laughs> so we have this um, concrete forming small batch run concrete facility at, at the plant. And so what we did is we, two of those kinds of forms, put them together. And then inside of that, that's where the foundation for our longhouse system resides, okay, is in these, in this type of form. Okay. Now inside that cavity is something where we can run pipe and run water. And so now basically we can have a higher baseline so that our Delta T is much, is much lower so you you don't quite have on-demand heating, but the amount of energy it takes to get it up to where you need it to be is a lot less. And so we're looking at, always looking at that kind of innovation. And, you know, what do we need? We need to execute this stuff on projects. Uh, the speed at which we go is not the speed that BC Housing goes. And so we have to rely on private money so that somebody sitting across the table from us can go, 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I like it. We want those early adopters, those people that say the aesthetic is good and the technology is amazing. We need people that can can grab that. Opportunity to talk about your book real quickly, right? Because so you, you're getting onto things like exergy here and using radiant heat with low temperature heat in low temperature cooling, right? Yeah. Or high temperature cooling. This is what you were talking about in your book. You did with BC Housing, right, Robert? Yeah. So BC Housing, I think it was Construction and Excellence Program. Anyways, they partially funded a book on thermal comfort and it was for the housing market. And, you know, we talked about low temperature heating and high temperature cooling and, and, but also the important, I mean, a big part of the book takes on architecture and controlling the loads so that mechanical solutions are the last solution, that the first solution should be passive. So, you know, better fenestration systems, overhang, shading, exterior shading, these types of things. And if we can get the loads down in buildings, less than 10 BTUs per hour per square foot, really easy to control them. And, you know, the t- discussion that you're talking about where you've got this, uh, I'm assuming that I didn't quite catch it there, but thermal mass with, with pipes in it. Is that what we're talking about? We would yes. dump over a million BTUs into this system, which is incredible. We call that a thermally activated building system and it's used all over the world. Well, Adam, you're familiar with some of yeah. that. So, you know, companies like TransSolar out of Germany, you know, that's their that's their game as is Peter Simmons and, you know, his guys. I mean, that's all that they specialize in is those types of buildings. There's a lot of benefit to it, but it's a concept that not a lot of people can wrap their head around. And yet there's lots of logic for it. And, you know, if we could get more buildings doing it, it would be great. Manitoba Hydro Building's all thermally activated building systems. And there's a couple of buildings in, I think, uh, Jeff McDonald, who's now retired, engineer out in BC, did a couple of buildings out in Vancouver that were TABs. The acronym for it. So. Yeah, I feel a bit better because what what I'm taking away from this conversation is like much of the housing, some of the stuff you're involved in, Daniel, is at a point where the demonstration sort of speaks for itself, right? It's demonstrably works. It's really about busting through culture and really sort of what Robert's talking about is getting these more energy efficient solutions into the supply chain, right? Because supply chain is another issue. You know, it's cheap to put a furnace in and blow hot and cold air at people because the supply chain has made it cheap through mass production, right? Yeah. So we know for certain that when we look at, when we changed our philosophy, our engineering philosophy, which was, you know, designed for people, good buildings follow. And that happened back in the uh, early 2000s, that the number of complaints that we got, like it basically vaporized. And instead of getting complaints about, too noisy, too bright, stinks, too hot, too cold. We started getting letters from clients about, we cannot believe that it's possible to live in these great environments. We didn't think we could, I didn't know they were available, right? And until people understand that when you live in crap and then you live in a place that's not crap, it's the difference between riding a donkey and riding a thoroughbred. And you you can't unsee it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? This is the thing. Yeah, yeah. But most yeah. people don't see it. So I, I want to talk about Planksit before we wrap up. I mean, obviously, we've been talking about housing and modular housing and some of the barriers to that. And it is one of my dreams to see before I die that break, modular housing breakthrough, that barrier. I would buy a modular house tomorrow if I could, if someone would just offer it to me with a no stress thing where I don't have to jump through 20 bureaucratic hoops, right? But your new venture, Daniel Planksit, you know, it's a publisher and a media outlet focusing on philosophy and culture. So there's a real tie in here with housing, right? Housing, in my view, is a cultural phenomenon. And there's a philosophy of home ownership 
Actually, let me scrub that. It's a cult of home ownership in the Anglo world. It's a goddamn yeah. cult. And if you ain't in it, you get <laughs> shunned, right? But Yeah, you do. You know, what your new venture has the ability to do, in my opinion, is address some of these cultural sacred cows, right? And try and move the culture. Because really what we're talking about here is a shift in culture as well, right? For people to ask for it, they got to know it's there. Then they got a culture, they got to want it and like it. Yeah. So how are you just changing the whole world with your new stuff then? Go. <laughs> Well, that's a big one because, okay, well, I mean, Adam, you know, you tuned in, you tuned into the, the Steve Keen show and you realize yeah. that there's a lot of moving parts from big macroeconomic realities that, that really, you know, falsely paint reality. And that, that's one of the things that Professor Steve Keen actually, you know, talks about is that we're living in a neoclassical economic model that doesn't really take into account the reality of let's focus for a minute on this, on this conversation and this point about climate. Yeah. Okay. Because I think that's really the lens through which, you know, Planksip really focuses. And so I did, I, I, I have Planksip as a media outlet that focuses on philosophy and culture, but very closely asterisks underneath that has to do with climate change. And it's almost everything that I look through has that lens. Right. Now, in order for the listeners to really understand why I take that approach, you know, there's a lot of deniers. There's a lot of we've always done it that way sort of mentality, you know, kind of pervasive throughout. Right. This is what Adam's talking about, yeah. actually. Yeah. And I pretty much look at it like this and say, what if the scientists are right? Let's just pretend that they're right. I want you to think of words like economic collapse. Yeah. I want you to think about words of like austerity, forced austerity. Like right now we have a choice, but if I'm building something for my children, what do I want to set them up with? These are things that we have to think about. And so the idea of Planksip really was we wanted to change what consumption actually meant. And so when you consume things via creating what we're doing here today, Okay, we're bringing attention to some issues. Yeah. Uh, when you're actually taking those steps to produce something and put it out, like you guys are, like, you know, uh, a podcast, hey, we're creating, what is the drawdown on the on consumption? Like, have you bought something that's going to end up in the landfill? Mostly no, right? Yeah. I mean, there's some computers and stuff like that, but the activity that you're participating in isn't really in that GDP tradition of, manufacture, produce. And I think we need to really, really examine that, okay? In the defense of some of the politicians, which is a weird thing to, to, to come up with, especially as we tie it back to housing, is that, yeah, there can be a housing shortage. There can be a lack of housing on the market. But I almost think to myself, what can individual families do? Can you invite your, you know, your son and your daughter to live in your big 3,000 square foot home? Possibly, hey, that might be a good solution, right? We hadn't had to extract any more. We all live in North America in large-ish houses, okay? Everywhere else in the world, at least they, you know, live with a lot less in terms of square footage. So how can we adapt and live together in more close-knit societies? And this, this is the cultural thing that has to a shift that has to hap happen. How do we change what it means to consume, right? And what does a footprint mean? You know, like, what is my responsibility for that footprint? And I think when people start to think in that way, and I think that's maybe the larger piece that Planksip focuses on, and the alternative that we give people is producing things, writing, thinking, read the classics, 
<laughs> who who knows who Homer is? It's not a person that's on The Simpsons, right? <laughs> yeah, Homer's not yellow, FYI. <laughs> yeah, like this is this is the heartbeat and the rhythm of all Western society. Yeah, and if we forget that, well, we may just be forced to return to that, and it's a great place to return to. Let me tell you. Oh, I'm a big fan of the Stoics and some of the philosophies you're talking about, but. Yeah, I, I agree. You would, uh, Robert, I think Daniel would get on great with Lloyd Alter because Lloyd Alter from treehugger.com. That's a bit of a miss. That's an old website, but he's not a tree hugger as most people think of tree huggers in a derogatory way. His message is look, you just got to consume less. Yeah. Do you need a $3,000 house? Do you need that extra monster truck with the step ladder to drive, get into it? You know, do you need that? It's just ridiculous. I was at a, I went and stayed at an Airbnb and you walk around new neighborhoods and stuff like this. And you guys will get this. So there's a new, new house. And I mean, it's got the, the Duroid roof. Okay. Which is fine. Oil-based. We all know that. And then I look at the siding and the siding's plastic oil-based. The driveway's all oil-based. And I was thinking, no, this is kind of a hitch move. We met, we wanted to bring hitch into this. So Adam will introduce, but this is the, this is like the, the pre-hitch warning. And then Adam's going to explain who hitch is. So he did something when he wrote, he would say almost like, and it's, it's been done by other writers too. It'd be like, imagine yourself, you know, 500 to a thousand years in the, the future and writing about us as a society. I'm looking at this house and I'm looking at it. Like it's modeling like plastic. It looks like uh, oily. <laughs> uh, rightfully so. What, what, what era are we in right now? Like we yeah. are in the, there's, there's no other God. To which we can pray. Right, yeah. We're plastically oily, like that's what this house reminds me of. And I think that the architecture and 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 the typical housing that we're going to look at when we're looking at this time, we're gonna look at it and go, wow, it was like greasy and oily, right? Like it'll look modeled like that. And and I think that you know we have we have to look to other, you know, more natural substances and they may not be as efficient. And that's the point. Oil is wanna, incredibly I, efficient. I want to, Daniel, you talk about plastic. So when we were practicing engineers, we would do VOC emission analysis, something that most mechanical engineers wouldn't do, right? But we would yeah. work with the interior designers and we would look at, we would actually model the emission rates. For their listening, I just brought up on my screen one of the, one of the models that we did. This was for a, a, a synthetic carpet, right? Hmm. Souffle of chemicals in there. It's about 25 items long. And you got tetramethyl benzene, dichlorine benzene, butanol, hexanol, methylpropanol. I mean, I could keep going on and on and on. There's everything in there. Heptanol, hexanol, noanol. I mean, there's, I mean, it's just a, a hydrocarbon souffle. Souffle, I love that. Yeah, it's a well, it is. It's a smorgasbord of hydrocarbons. People don't understand that, right? And what ends up happening with a lot of these synthetics is that as soon as they become exposed to shortwave radiation and moisture, but particularly shortwave radiation, they begin to break down. So a lot of the smells that you get and a lot of the dust particles that you get is actually the breakdown of construction materials that is due to shortwave radiation on synthetic materials. Yeah. Right. So you're absolutely right. I mean, you look, and that's why I started to laugh when you said, well, there's a thousand years in the future and people write about our plastic houses. And I'm just going, if they only knew. Listen, let me put that in maybe even better context, right? So I did a a tour of Versailles, you know, the French royal household, Louis XIV. And 
he was the king of France. He was a silent prior, and he used to defecate in the rooms. So at that point in time in human history, it was okay to defecate in the room, right? Now we look back at that and go, what were they thinking? <laughs> in 200 years from now, we will look back, people will look back like Christopher Hitchens does and say, what were they doing? They were living in this chemical soup of that was making them ill. You know, volatile organic compounds are not to be ignored, right? They make you ill. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, it will it will be looked back on the same way we look back at royalty defecating in the rooms and leaving it there, right, and not flushing it away. It's just nuts. But, you know, just for, as well for the audience, so we're talking about Hitch. This is Christopher Hitchens, the British-American academic, writer, cultural observer, intellectual giant who died of cancer actually a few years ago now, much to my chagrin. I'd love to see what he made of cancel culture. But he didn't suffer falls, but he was really great at taking something and taking you outside of it and getting you to look at it differently. That was his superpower. Every industry needs a hitch. So check him out on Google. Just Google Christopher Hitchens. There's loads of videos of him out there, drunk mostly because he was also a big drinker, but absolutely owning people. And it is through his, his intellect and academic ferocity that he does that. It's hard to disagree. You might not like what he says, but it's pretty hard to disagree with him. He's a classy intellect and yeah. he... He's got some style, yeah. right? And, and he agreed with people or he was friends with people on both sides. So he was yep. very much uh, one of the four horsemen, the atheists that, you know, was really one of the starting points for me to get back into academics. Like, how do you come from an like engineering construction sort of area mm-hmm. and then end up in academics, yeah. right? That's, that was kind of, that was attributed to to Hitch actually. Yeah. And, and a friend of mine that introduced me to him. And then I think I woke up at one point and said, I spend so much time thinking about how to make money or build this house or do that or whatever. And I'm like losing touch of, of classics like Candide. And that's the exact example that kind of comes to mind when I think of Hitch. I was reading one of his books and he said Candide. And I mean, of course, now I know Voltaire is kind of like a the earlier version or the inspiration for maybe even Forrest Gump. I don't know, right? right? This kind of happy-go-lucky kind of yeah, that seems to yeah. how dominate the world somehow, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so anyways, he had mentioned something and he was writing and people, when they read, they skim a lot. They move yeah. really quickly. And yeah. there was a word that said Candide, but Hitch was referring to something. He meant, so when he referenced Candide, if you didn't pause to think about what Hitch was actually referring to, the fast reading person would just go candid. Yes. Like, I'm just being candid, right? And so you'd read really quickly and you wouldn't pick up that. And that was the idea behind Planksip. Yeah. Planksip was intended to be an individual learn uh, unit of understanding, right? This plank being an organic platform and sip like a, yeah. a cup of coffee, right? We wanted to change the way consumption mm-hmm. was consumed. And so if you take time to think about what that word was, don't gloss over on it. Slow down. Think about what was that? What does he mean by that word? And think about it for a little bit. And that, that was the idea. And that's, that, that was the real pivot point behind playing sip. And uh, it, it was a friend of mine that got me into him and he's passed away since his thing to me. And I feel a little bit sheepish by saying this, as he said to me, he goes, Dan, one day you're going to be bigger than Hitch. And I, I can say I knew you. That'd be awesome. Well, no, I mean, but the thing was, and, and, and I go, those are mighty big shoes to fill. 
And it doesn't motivate me. It's just something that I remember that he said, you know, because I mean, you know, you're going to differentiate. That's what we do. I mean, Hitch was Hitch and I'm... In many ways, it's a reflection of what we're missing in society today, which is the ability to have critical thinking. Yes. You know, slowing down, thinking about words and the relationship of words, just the pieces of the puzzle, right? It's absent in such a big way, the ability to think critically about pick a topic, right? We see it right now with COVID, right? I mean, just how many millions of people can't think about it from a critical point of view. Yes, that ability to get outside of your own head and look at it, right? And Absolutely. So I was always taught, you don't know, if you can't argue both sides of an argument, you don't understand it. You've got to be able, you know, if someone wants to debate me on politics, they've got to be able to give me both sides or I'm not even entertaining that conversation, right? Yeah, I was yeah. taught something similar. I was taught never enter a debate unless you know the argument, yeah. their argument more than you know your own. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I actually root for the other argument sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So if it's a theological sure. argument, I remember having a discussion with a, a Muslim fellow and I, I actually approached it. I'm not very good at debates. I'm very good at trying to understand. And I think that making the understanding self-evident in a conversation, much like what we're doing, is the best form of enlightenment, I guess. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of grasping at that last word. I don't know what it, it's of understanding. But anyways, you you take this idea and I can see his perspective being a Muslim man. And I tried to drill down and we know all the standard theological arguments. And I said to him, I said, well, what about an an argument of identity, right? Like I'm a proud Muslim man, not, not me, but this fellow, I'm a proud Muslim man. And the reason why I want to keep my faith is because I can't imagine who I would be without it. And I like the person that I am with it. Okay. And he was like, yeah, that's how, it summarizes for me, right? And everything else is a an apologetic. It's a compatibility story to try and say, this is how I feel and how I approach the world. This is how my community approaches the world. And here's how we want to integrate it. Right, wrong, or indifferent. And Adam can speak about, you know, some of the, you know, not so desirable aspects of the Muslim faith, which... I could you give know, you a strong argument for being a Muslim, a Jew, and a Christian and all of it. I could argue yeah. that all day and make you get on board probably. With my yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's sadly it's because I've traveled a lot and I've got a wide circle of friends who are just from all them faiths, right? So I, so I have an understanding of all of them. But, well, this is, a, you know, we're coming up on the end now, but I just want to acknowledge this is the first time we've done an interview, Robert, where we've gone down the philosophy rabbit hole and bought in Hitch. So I'm just <laughs> while we, considering we've been, this has been a Christopher Hitchens episode. I just want to bring in one other hero of mine intellectually, Richard Feynman, Dr. Richard Feynman. Oh, yeah. Right? You ever heard of him? Absolutely, man. You got to spend some more time on the Planks website. I, I, I joke with it because I got the, bo- the, yeah. the, the, the bongo drums and I have memes that say he's a fine man. Oh, yeah, Richard <laughs> Feynman is the hero, man. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's got a few things, right? He was, uh, he was one of the, uh, he's just a preeminent like, physicist, right? He worked out why the Space Challenger blew up. He also is a pickpocket, a hypnotist. His great saying is, if you can't explain something complicated to someone and get to understand it, you do not understand it. Yeah. yeah. That's it. And that is perfect, man. If all teachers could just embody that, life would be so much better. (laughs) Adam, you pick up um, James Glick's book on on Richard Feynman, brilliant. And then also James Glick is a writer on chaos. All right. One of the best books you can read. Oh, I'm a big fan of chaos theory. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. God, we've really gone down a rabbit hole, haven't we? 
So listen, we better wrap up before people okay. think this is a philosophy podcast, <laughs> which it <laughs> <will be. laughs> Daniel, we normally finish on a, on a quick fire question from each of us. I'll give you mine. So give me your top three philosophers. Plato. Absolutely. Plato. Top three. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to change the rules because that's what I do. So my, my top thinkers are going to be George Steiner, Plato, and uh, uh, Antonio Damasio. Okay. Can't argue with any of that. I, well, I was going to ask you who are the who are the most three evil people in the world right now, but that's <laughs> that'd be too easy. Actually, what, what, what the question I do want to know is: let's just say we are a thousand years in the future, and and housing is all prefabricated and modular. What happened? What steps happened that all of a sudden that is the norm as opposed to being the abnorm? Well, you know what? It's going to take direct leadership, and it was a point that I never brought up. But in the instance that you know, with the Bifama homes that I'm working with, we're saying screw it, screw it. We're just going to go buy the properties ourselves, do it ourselves. Because when that property is there, then someone will buy it. I agree. I don't have to convince somebody, and somebody Mm -hmm. doesn't have to say, "Well, I don't like that shade of white," or those pillows are not in the right. Fuck it. There's the house you want it. Buy it. If you don't want it, there's someone else who's going to buy it. Absolutely. So that is the way to do it. We just got to buy our own properties, do it, put it on, and let the momentum of, of Sisyphus Rock just keep. We got to move it forward. That initial inertia, we've got we, we to take the leadership on that. Yeah, Excellent. I like that. I think that's about the only thing you can do right now to move this thing forward. So kudos on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, look, a, I think we're going to wrap that up. Daniel, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Thank you. Yeah. That was awesome. And it's, you know, it's people go, oh, it's a podcast about building construction, you know, but life is so much more than what you do, right? And philosophy comes into everything, every job, every walk of life. It's there, whether you know it or not, right? It's your operating system. You just don't know you have it sometimes, right? Yeah. So I'm all in on that. Thank you so much for coming on. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commission software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612, 460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> Adam, I know it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep, they're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. 
You mean that's the suite of moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know, another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Gotta go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767 and also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Census Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now, back to the show. All right, well, Adam, another uh, good uh, interview. I, I love we get into the philosophical discussion. Yeah. And uh, Danielle, obviously a very philosophical individual, well-read and uh, is applying his knowledge, obviously, to helping his clients. I love the fact that, you know, everything is connected, really, right? Yeah, everything is a system within a system of systems. I always say in some presentations, a building is a system of systems. Start with the facade, right, and work your way in. But, you know, he's taking that systems approach out to another level where, you know, we talk about construction and buildings and property and design and delivery, but that sits within people's philosophy and that culture, right? Buildings are a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Our philosophy matters. And this is how you get people not getting on, right? You get people with different philosophies and approaches who can't work together and that's fine. They have to go and work with people more like them. But actually, it turns out philosophy matters. And having someone say that out loud and bring that into their business, I think, is a wonderful thing. It is. And, and the, the, of course, as they're discovering Philosophical discussions and philosophies oftentimes clash with culture. Hmm. And uh, as he's experiencing and other companies before him and, and other ones coming will always clash with the status quo of the construction industry. As you said, down, yeah. down in, the, in the U.S., you know, they try to do the big the big thing with all the high tech and all the money and all, I mean, all the professional managers and probably could get their hands on the top engineers yeah. and whatever and build the dream team. And then they went onto the job site and there was somebody there with a coffee cup and a sledgehammer and said, no effing way. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. That was idealism went head first at speed into reality. <laughs> <laughs> I said, hold my beer. You ain't changing anything. <laughs> I don't care how much money you have, how yeah. fancy yeah. You know, you guys are how sophisticated and how zippy us folk here on the job site, twisting wrenches and pounding nails and tying rebar. Actually, you know what? That was a classic example, Katera, we're talking about here, of good intentions and money not knowing what it doesn't know, right? So, you know, the yeah. arrogance of busting into an industry and thinking you're going to change it without real deep domain expertise. Yeah. I'm sure there was expertise within the business, but not at the board and big levels. You know, where it really needed. Yeah. I'm a guessing here. I don't know, by the way, everybody. But, you know, I think certainly if property and construction is going to change, it has to be evolution, not revolution, you know. And yeah, philosophy is part of that. And I love the fact that Daniel couched climate change and, you know, all that in a philosophy context. Because climate change is a thing. You know, it's not, it's not around, you know yeah. and environment. Mental degradation is a thing. Pollution is a thing. You know, overfishing is a thing. These are all things. But depending on your philosophy and cultural approach, you're either in or out on them, right? Yeah. You know, and it can be as simple as, well, when I turn on my faucet in the morning, potable cold water comes out of it. I'm good. <laughs> That's really what's going on, yeah. Yeah. right? You know, it's, it's great being like hair on fire alarmist, but most people you're talking to in the West – 
they can turn on the tap in the morning and water comes out and they can wash their teeth, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I remember I was up in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska coming back. We actually got stuck up in Fairbanks as it happens up there. You know, storms come in and you can't get on a plane. And there was a few of us that were, you know, trying to get out. And the big airlines weren't flying, but you could get a private plane plane out. And uh, I ended up sitting beside the interior, the Minister of the Interior. All right. And we flew back to Anchorage from Fairbanks and had probably one of the most interesting discussions that I've ever had on a plane with anybody yeah. beside me. As, and you've had many, many discussions, too, with interesting people as you travel on your journeys. And we started to talk about, because one of his responsibilities was these remote communities on the ocean side. Right. You're talking about, you know, generations of, you know, First Nations people, as we call them in Canada, that were in communities where the permafrost was melting and waters were rising and their communities were literally being eaten up by the changes. And what was left Young people had laughed, but the elderly people didn't. That was their home, you know? And so the community service providers had to work with these individuals, the leaders, senior leaders of these communities, to get them to move. Yeah. And some of them wouldn't. Yeah, it was. And it was like, so we have engineering problems here. We got social problems here. We have economic problems here. So when we talk about climate changes, and I, I always use climate changes of consequence, Climate change has always happened. It's yeah. you, know, you can go back as far as you want and look at statistics. We've always had climate change, but what are the, we're now faced with climate changes of consequence and where we're actually starting to see this happen yeah. um, in live time. And, you know, you can deny it and you can hate the messengers and all that kinds of stuff, but ultimately it comes down to thermal dynamics. I, you, I don't know if you've been following my post on Twitter lately, but... Yeah, no, I see you, you're getting more and more of strippers. I notice as you're going on. <laughs> Oh, man, I tell you, there's, I mean, the people that are just attacking, we have some people here in Alberta that are, you know, that, you know, they're strong supporters of changes that we, that are necessary. And, you know, we're in a province here that's hydrocarbon based. I mean, for God's sakes, our, the wealth that went into this province is all from taking that shit out of the ground and selling it and making stuff with it, right? But, you know, the, the message is there and, you know, I don't really, and I don't typically get into the debates with these deniers and the haters, but I do throw out the science. And the facts are, is that when you put matches to hydrocarbon to heat a home, you're turning that room temperature gas into 1,700 degrees Celsius or 3,200 degrees Fahrenheit when you only need 180 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's just stupid. Yeah. You know, that's just stupid. Who talks about exergy, right? Nobody talks about exergy. And so I don't, you know, for me, I'm not going to get into the debates about whether you believe it or not. The fact of the matter is, is that what we're doing is just not an, an intelligent thing. But, and the know, consequences are... Yeah, you're challenging the culture, right? This is, I think the problem with climate change is the name, climate change. Mm. Immediately, most people think, that's God's deal. I can't deal with that. What, can I, what difference can I make, right? If it was re-couched as environmental degradation, the question is, do you want your kids to have a bad future, right? Then let's stop overfishing. Hey, maybe let's stop. Let's stop using the sea as a garbage dump, right? But yeah, you've got to take it down a level. When you took climate change, nine people out of ten just check out. Yeah. That's God's department. I can't do anything about that, yeah. right? And that's the problem. But I don't know. Philosophy is a big factor because 
culture and philosophy are tied together. If the messaging can be put into a philosophical and cultural context, I think you've got more chance of communicating it and having people buy in, getting them to think about their current philosophy and what they want the culture to look like for their children and their grandchildren. Yeah. Everybody would agree on that, right? No matter who you are, left, right, middle, up, down, most 99.9% of people agree, I want a better future for my kids. I want them to live well. I want them to not be hungry. I want them to have a safe place to live, right? Everybody will get on board with that. And then you've got to build it up from there, right? Well, what do we not need to do to make that happen? Well, we not need to start, let's not throw plastic into the food chain, maybe. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, Daniel talked about, uh, you know, brought in some uh, theological uh, discussion yeah. into it. And, you know, the whole time that he was uh, talking and making a, you know, a good case for it, I was thinking about, you know, something my dad said to me a long time ago. He says, you know, don't get married to your shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. right. Don't get married to your shit because when you need to get rid of that stuff, you won't. Right. And that's the problem. And, you know, our, so one of the things that we're required, what we require of people is not to get married so much to their philosophies that they're yeah. not prepared to make the necessary changes to invoke improvements. And so your dad was talking about cult, right? So yeah. there's a there's a line you cross between philosophy and cultism. Yeah, right. Everything's yeah, a cult, sure. actually, right? Yeah. I was born into the Christian cult. Right now, Christianity could be a philosophy, and then it's uh, there's philosophy, religion, and cult. Right, and that line between all of them is super blurry. <laughs> right, <laughs> and the point is, if it's a philosophy, I believe it's easy to change and look outside it. And the more you go to the cult end of the spectrum, the harder it is to get outside and look at it and critique it. Right. Yeah, that describes the spectrum of. People who are vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, vaxxers and anti, you know, there's people out there that, you know, that just won't wear masks, that won't get vaccinated. And they've, you know, collected themselves in a team. And And they've identified with it. And then all of a sudden you're changing their identity, not their behavior. That's the problem, right? Absolutely. That's exactly the problem. And yet they could say the same thing, you know, that, well, if we're on one end of the pendulum, you guys are on the other. And so it's us versus them. You know, rather than looking at the entire swing and saying, well, that degree between one spectrum and the other is society. And if we want it to keep moving forward, we got to be able to give up some of the things that we're so married to. You know, as my dad said, don't get married to your shit because it'll it'll kill you. You know, it will. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's wise words. Well, yeah, you think about kids that, you know, and I, you know, again, and my dad was a smart guy. You know, I remember him saying to me, I was going to buy my first car and I was looking at a Triumph TR6. And (laughs) I was like 18 at the time, right? And he looked at me because he had very compassionate eyes, right? But, you know, deep behind those eyes is you're an idiot. (laughs) He says, you can, a TR6, you should buy that when you have money because if you buy it now, you won't have any money. You know, and as, and as I found out that I had to make a decision whether I wanted to keep the car or pay for my tuition, so the car had to go because I couldn't afford to keep keep it running, you know? Uh-huh. But yeah, don't get married to your shit because it actually, what it does is it freezes you. It puts you in a frame and you can't get out of it. It's the Hotel California. Yeah, it's a ball and chain you're dragging around, right? Yeah, sure you are. Yeah. yeah. So to wrap this up with a little bow, philosophy matters, right? 
It your does. operating system, your philosophy, your core values, they matter. And that's how you interact with the world. And that actually bleeds all the way down into your housing choices, your car choices. Do you chuck things out the window as garbage or do you recycle them, right? That all yeah. is your philosophy and your core values. It all wraps up in that. So, you know, I think we'll call this the philosophy episode. And, you know, it's a bit deep. I think we should all go out and get hammered now or smoke some weed. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was uh, good. It's a deep thinking podcast, this one. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know what I'm going to do, Adam, is, is that I got this as a gift. <laughs> You're going to so, neck that back. Hit, what was that, Hitchin? What's the guy's name? You guys Christopher Hitchens. Right, right. Check so him I, out. You I, should I, have, have a, a, drown, have a strong man. glass of whiskey, <laughs> maybe two, and then just watch him on Google. Yeah. It'll be awesome. That's a great way to spend an evening, actually. I'm going to do that. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. I'll see you in the next one. All right, Adam. Cheers, man. See you later. Bye. All right, bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.